Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us, to the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. But where I am, there you may be also. <clears throat> now, in a certain sense, uh, this sermon uh, dovetails with the uh, sermon this morning on David's hope in the covenant of God and the covenant of grace God had made with him. This is what he was desirous of, that his eternal destiny would be to reside in the house of many mansions. Now, this phrase, house of many mansions, is one of the favorites uh, uh, amongst Bible readers. It's up there with phrases like, God so loved the world, and God is love, and the name that is above every name. At least that used to be the case before modern versions of the Bible spoiled it all. Because most of these modern versions, they translate this as the house of many rooms. Now, somehow, that's just not what we suspect is being taught here. However, what's really strange is that, strictly speaking, both translations are inaccurate. Mansions and rooms. The same word is used further down in this chapter, referring to God's presence with believers. If you look at verse 23, the end of the verse, we will make our abode with them. And that word abode is the word that is translated for us here as mansions. Money, abode. Now, there's no doubt that translators of the authorized version faced a challenge, a challenge to how to translate this term doing justice to the context in which they found the term. And they evidently felt that house of many abodes would have seemed rather strange. And they also felt and I'm quite sure they would have thought of this, that house of many rooms sounded, well, rather cheap. And as we shall see, neither would really achieve what Christ intended in this uh, incident. Now, we make these com comments with a Western mindset looking at the scriptures. Perhaps the term abode has far more meaning in the Middle East than it does 
in nations in the Western world. And then there's the added problem of 2,000 years of history and progress making huge changes, far greater changes in the Western world than in the Middle East. So sometimes we must consider Scripture by imagining what this was like 2,000 years ago, what Christ meant by using this phrase in that culture 2,000 years ago. And sometimes that benefits us greatly because it gives us insights that the translation itself doesn't convey to us. Now, having said all of that, let's explore some of the issues around those famous words. Well, first of all, to look at the context in which this phrase is found. Jesus at this stage has approximately 12 hours left on this earth. Shortly before this, he told Peter and John, this is in, you find this in Luke 22, to look for a man, go out on the street of Jerusalem, and to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water, which in itself was quite a challenge. I mean, you remember the thousands of people that converged on Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would look for this man, and I dare say he wouldn't have been the only man carrying a pitcher of water. But in any case, look for a man carrying a pitcher of water, and he shall show you a large upper room furnished there. Make ready. This was to prepare the Passover, the last Passover that God would ever recognize as valid in this world. Now, this is crucial to our understanding of what Jesus is saying here and the terminology that he used. So let's consider some details of that last Passover to help us understand even more of what our Lord meant. Now, although it's not stated to, for us explicitly, when Peter and John went looking for this uh, room and for this um, preparation for the Passover, Judas Iscariot also went along with them. You see, the lamb that they were to prepare or at least the lamb they were to take the, to the temple, the lamb was already prepared. Uh, uh, quite a number, a large number of these lambs uh, would have been prepared throughout the year, especially for the Passover, so that all these pilgrims that came to Jerusalem, they would have to go to the sellers of those lambs and purchase a lamb for themselves to celebrate the Passover. Now, that lamb had to be bought. Money had to be paid for it. And they also needed other items to put on the Passover table. And that's why we are suggesting to you that Judas Iscariot must have gone along because he was a treasurer. He was the man who had the money bag and he would have to pay the bills. Now, isn't it ironic, to say the least, that the great traitor, paid for the bill to feed our Lord his last meal. Isn't that ironic? In any case, Peter and John would have taken the lamb 
to the temple. And there it would have been ceremonially killed for the Passover. And the priest would have taken certain parts of that uh, carcass, kept it for their own purposes, and given to Peter and John the necessary parts for the Passover table. They would have brought that back to the upper room. And as Jesus and the disciples sat at that table, we learn from the uh, first reading we had here in the first part of chapter 13, that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples immediately before serving the Passover meal to them. However, that blessed time of peace and fellowship and felicity in the upper room came to a sudden halt. They received, the disciples that is, they received three blows one after another. The first blow was the exposure of Judas Iscariot as the traitor. Now these men knew Judas well. He had been carrying out a ministry with them for three years. They ate and slept and worked and preached alongside that man and he with them. And they never for a moment suspected that he wasn't just like them. But he wasn't. He fully partook of the ministry of Christ, but nevertheless, he was not a genuine, sincere believer. And then he saw and heard this from the lips of Jesus, handing him a soap of bread and saying, verse 27, that thou doest do quickly. Now that must have been a severe shock for these disciples. Don't you think? Now that shock was uh, very quickly followed by another. The second blow. Jesus began speaking to them of his imminent departure. Now he already told them on two or three occasions that he would have to suffer, that he would have to die, but they just didn't seem to be listening. They certainly didn't seem to believe him. But there was something about this moment. As he spoke to them, they seemed to have taken on board that there was something ominous about that particular night. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. That's all the time we have left together. A little while. That was the second blow. The third blow was Jesus predicting the denial of Peter. This is in verse 38 of chapter 13. Now, Peter wasn't just another disciple. Peter was the leader of the disciples. Peter was the spokesman of the disciples. Peter was the one who always took the lead. Now, if he, their chief disciple, was going to deny the Lord, where was that going to leave them?
That was bad news, my friends. Very bad news. And where did that bad news leave them? Well, it leaves you. And when it leaves me, when it comes our way, with a sore and troubled heart. Hence the words at the beginning of this chapter. Let not your heart be troubled. He recognized that they were deeply troubled by what he had said and what they saw him doing, especially with Judas Iscariot. You know, my friends, nobody will escape a troubled heart living in this world. All the great men and women of Scripture, they all succumbed sooner or later, to some degree or other, to a troubled heart. In fact, the uh, psalmist, uh, the psalm we were singing a moment ago in Psalm 34, he wrote, the troubles that afflict the just in number many be. So Jesus had to console them. But he didn't offer them half a remedy. He didn't just say to them, look, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Oh, no, he said more than that. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe also in me. Now, is there anyone present here this evening? Young people, old people, is there anyone present to whom those words do not apply? Is there anyone sitting in the pews here this night and that can say quite openly and honestly, nothing is troubling me, nothing at all? I doubt it very much. Isn't it true, my friends, that all of us have troubled hearts to some degree or other? Even the young people present here, you also know what a troubled heart is. Indeed, you have to... You don't have to live in this world very long until you experience more and more and more the troubled heart. Now, however we define and however we assess our troubled hearts, whether we are children or adults, here's the best calming influence you could ever receive. Jesus Christ urging you, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, think about these words very carefully. Because the first part of that phrase, believe in God, you're already doing that. I don't think there's anyone present here this evening, child or adult alike, who doesn't believe in God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe in God. That's not all he says. Believe in God, yes. Believe also in me. It is not enough, my friends. And you will not find the peace you are looking for and the peace you need simply by believing that a God exists in heaven. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the Prince of peace to his people. Believe in God? Yes. Believe also in me. 
And as he commanded the wind and waves of Galilee with his famous words, peace be still, so the Lord Jesus can command our troubled hearts, my friends, be still and know that I am God. We may be 2,000 years down the line, but we're not really unlike those disciples because their troubles, their doubts, their fears, they're all too familiar to us. So let's receive this encouragement from our Prince of Peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let me move on to look at this upper room. Now, to whom this house belonged, we can't be sure, we're not told, but commentators agree for some reason or other that it must have been the house of Mark's parents. I, I, know, I don't know. I have no difficulty with that. But in any case, here the disciples find themselves, 11 men, Judas is now gone, with their savior. Now, what's interesting here is that there were many rooms, in inverted commas, like this, scattered throughout Jerusalem. Because, as I mentioned a moment ago, thousands of people converged on the city to celebrate the Passover. Now, they couldn't all obviously go to the temple. They were uh, provided with rooms in a whole variety of houses scattered throughout the city. And they would have to have a minimum of 10 to a room. That was the minimum number allowed for Passover. Now, in my understanding of this, there's a direct correlation between those rooms and the courts of the temple. They are meant to represent the courts of the temple. And those who are in those rooms celebrating the Passover, they are to think about the Passover at the temple itself. Now, notice the phrase in verse 2. In my father's house, there are many mansions. That phrase, in my father's house, this is Jesus describing the temple in the first instance. You remember how he scolded the traders? Twice, actually, the beginning and uh, at the end of his ministry for abusing the temple. Chapter 2 of God, John's Gospel, verse 16. Make not my father's house a place of merchandise. So in the mind of Christ, the Old Testament tabernacle, Solomon's temple, somehow reflected God's home in heaven above. Uh, briefly, let's consider the design of the temple. It consisted of an outer room, an inner court, and an inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. And in that inner chamber, you had, as it were, the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, with a cherubim overhanging the mercy seat. This was thought of as God's throne room. Now, altogether, it accommodated place for the Gentiles, place for women, place for the priests, and a place for worship. Each group 
hatarun room. The only room prohibited to the, everyone except the high priest was God's throne room. No one was allowed to go in there except the high priest once a year. That was the religious philosophy of the tabernacle and then later on the temple. Till Christ came. Till Christ came. And when he came, he introduced a new terminology to refer to the temple. It became in his terminology, in his thinking, my father's house. Even at 12 years of age, he was thinking along those lines. I must be about my father's business. Where did he say that? In the temple. So the single most important location in Jewish thought until then was the temple in Jerusalem. It was revered. It was held in the highest esteem, even perhaps to the point of superstition. Meanwhile, here's the disciples. They're gathered in this one room, one that alluded to the temple worship room. And they're being told very grim news. So Jesus consoles them by alluding to the temple, but with language they had never heard before. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Now we should note the train of thought here. It all began with a tabernacle in the wilderness. Physically, 99.9% .9 of the children of Israel never entered that sacred place. They never entered it. But God made accommodation for them. He made sure that they surrounded the temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And he made particular accommodation for the tribe of Judah. That was a tribe that was situated directly opposite the door into or the curtain into the tabernacle. The tribe from which the Lord Jesus would eventually come. Then later on, God designed the temple to allow for even more accommodation. Because not only did it have room for Jews and priests and high priests, it also had a court for women and a court for the Gentiles. So now Jesus is confronting the doubts and fears and troubles of his disciples by this unique terminology. In my father's house are many mansions. In other words, yes, you are here confined to one room. It's not even a room in the physical temple. But this is what he wanted them to do. But lift your minds higher to a higher plane of thought in my father's house. He wants them not to think about the Jerusalem temple, but of his father's house up in glory. The heavenly abode where there is room for all types of sinners. 2,000 years on, we must see three major developments in God's plan in this regard. 
It began with a tabernacle in the wilderness. The next development or the next stage was a temple in Jerusalem. The next stage was the Christian church in the New Testament era. These are all expressions of God's accommodation for men and women, for boys and girls. But they were and are all provisional. This, my friends, what we call the house of God, this is a temporary home for us, typifying what? The Father's house of many mansions beyond the realms of time in the great glory above. Father's house of many mansions. The tragedy for the Jews of our Lord's day and still for the Jews today, they can't see beyond that temple. They can't lift their eyes above the things of time and sense. Look at them in Jerusalem today. Where are they? They're standing at the ruins of that temple wall, wailing and crying into what? Nothingness. They are unable to lift their minds to a higher plane of thought. Take care, my friends, that you don't fall into that trap. Far too many people who frequent the Christian church cannot see beyond the bricks and mortar. This is a temporary provision for us, my friends. We're on a journey. This is not a final destination. It's a station on the way. We are on a glory-bound journey, my friends. There's always a higher plane for us to reach up to. And at very best, the tabernacle, the temple, and the physical Christian church. They're just staging posts. They're just staging posts. Our destination is the Father's house of many mansions. Let me move thirdly to look at this phrase, house of many mansions, in more detail. Of the choice of terms in translating this word, mansions certainly has advantages over abode or over rooms. And we must also appreciate that it is impossible, literally impossible, to depict heaven or to picture heaven by any human language. There is no terminology we can use to describe the beauty and the glory of heaven. It's beyond human language. Uh, meanwhile, Jesus constantly challenged the earthly view that these Jews clung to when it came to all things divine. And even Solomon's temple, uh, that was unearthly struct structure to them, albeit a holy one, so here, Jesus visualizes heaven 
by using this phrase, a house of many mansions. Now, a thousand years before this, Abraham, he was given a glimpse of the house of many mansions beyond the clouds. When he saw that celestial city, we're told about this in Hebrews 11, verse 10. He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Whose builder and maker is God. The celestial city. Paul had a similar view in Hebrews 13. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We seek one to come. And then, of course, we have the picture of heaven in the book of Revelation, the enclosed city, the walls of precious stones, the streets paved with gold, and so on. So when we pull all this information together, we see something of what Jesus meant here by the phrase, house of many mansions. Let me mention four things of huge significance regarding this phrase. First of all, the house of many mansions is the place of God's abiding presence with his people. That's why the word abode is used. The presence, the abiding presence of God. What do we mean by the abiding presence of God? We mean the presence that we will never lose sight of, the presence that will never leave us, his abiding presence. Here, my friends, we enjoy this presence from time to time. We enjoy the nearness of God from time to time. We enjoy the blessings that come from his presence from time to time. But so many things interrupt the fellowship we have with our God. So many things spoil our view of the glory of God. We lose it. How many times can you, believer, here this evening, how many times as you reflect upon your life that you can say, I lost sense of the presence of God. You'll never lose sight of him in the house of many mansions. It's going to be an abiding presence, constantly, eternally. And not only will we be aware, consciously aware of his presence, but we'll be aware of the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You need some imagination, my friends, holy, sanctified imagination to draw this picture in your mind. What does it mean to have the abiding presence of God? It means that when you enter the portals of a house of many mansions, the glory of the triune God will fill your every horizon. Every horizon. It will fill your heart with love 
It will fill your soul with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what the abiding presence means. In my father's house of many mansions. The second thing that this conveys to us is that it's a place of sheer magnitude. Only God himself knows the final population of the house of many mansions when that last trumpet sounds. Only God himself knows. But despite that, by using this phrase, the house of many mansions, every single individual chosen of God since the beginning of time until the end of time, you will find a place in the abiding presence of your God. Every single one of us. Not one of us will be missing. Not one of us will be at a distance from him. We have discussions from time to time about the question, will there be some saints closer to Christ than other saints? Will Paul be closer to Christ than Ian Smith? I think it's a non-question. It's a non-question. There's no such thing as distance. We'll all be in the abiding presence of Christ. We will be conscious of distance. Sheer magnitude of a house of many mansions. The third thing, it's a place without bias and without prejudice. In this life, all sorts of things create bias and prejudice in our lives. Our genes, our genealogy, our culture, our skin color, and much else besides. In the house of many mansions, none of that counts. None of that counts, my friends. These features are not important. Each born-again Christian is an adopted child of God's grace. And it matters not who or what you wear in this life. It matters not a whit, when, where, and how you were born, how you lived, how you died. You will be a child of grace residing in the abiding presence of your God. No bias, no prejudice. And fourthly, it's a place of sheer beauty and glory. Hence the idea of mansions. And that's why I like the translation mansions more than rooms. Now, much imagery is used in the Bible to convey to us the richness, the luxury, the exuberance of the house of many mansions. But what makes heaven a mansion? a paradise for believers is the focus we shall have there on the Lamb of God in the midst of the throne. Him who loved us 
and gave himself for us. We sometimes ask, will we know each other in heaven? I don't know. I'm not interested in that question. I will be so consumed with the beauty and the glory of my Savior, I won't be conscious of anything else. To use the words of the great hymn, I will not gaze on glory, but on my King of grace. So Jesus told the disciples, verse 2, if it were not so, I would have told you. If it was any different from this, I would have told you. And then there's this sweet personal touch. I go to prepare a place for you. And he did for those disciples what the gospel promises to do for our fellows here this evening. He piled on these men, blessing after blessing after blessing. Uh, verse 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, don't be misled by that, by these words, there you may be also. You have to be there. It can't be otherwise. You're part of him. You are inseparably united to him if you're a believer. You have to be there. It's sealed in the blood of the Lamb that you will be there in the abiding presence of your God eternally. So let me close asking. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is preparing a place for you right now in the Father's house of many mansions? The only acceptable answer you can give to that question, my friend, is for you to pin your hopes on the crucified Christ of God, risen, exalted, crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But remember this, for you to enjoy the abiding presence of God eternally, you must have the abiding presence of Christ now in this life. And it's only those who have the abiding presence of a Savior in this life or in this world that can truly cherish that hope in their hearts that they shall be with them, which is far better. And that's why the Bible repeats its invitation to men and women, to boys and to girls. Come, in repentance and faith, take up that cross and follow Christ and let him take care of your troubled heart and your troubled mind or whatever other burdens you may have in this world. And by doing that, your eternal destiny will be sure and secure 
and you will find your place in the abiding presence of God in the house of many mansions. Let's pray. Oh, we thank thee, Lord, for the promises of thy word, for being able to picture for us what cannot really be described. We cannot even imagine it, not with the wildest imagination, can we envisage what the house of many mansions really looks like. But we believe it, and we long to be there, and grant that everyone present here this evening would make this a prayer, would make this their desire to be in the abiding presence of God for time and for eternity. Keep us in thy fear. Pardon us for the Redeemer's sake, our prayer.